0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theater Schmooze from Alliance for Jewish Theater, where we chat with Jewish theater makers from around the world about their art, Judaism, and vision for theater's future. I'm your host, Danielle Lefsky. Today, we'll be talking with Emily Mann, who is a playwright, director, screenwriter, and recovering artistic director, her words, not mine, based in Princeton, New Jersey, It's such an honor to have you as the first guest on our show, Emily.
1: Oh, it's wonderful to be here. And I want to thank you, Danielle, for
0: asking me. I'd love to start off with your most current show off-Broadway, Gloria, a life. Audiences really get a wonderful introduction and history to Gloria Steinem's work as a journalist and activist. What was it like for you to work on a play about such an important historical figure like Gloria Steinem?
1: Well, I actually worked with Gloria. So that's what the glory of working on
0: Gloria Life
1: was, was that I got had the incredible privilege to uh, spend four years with Gloria Stein. Um, and she was the one who asked me to write her life story. So I did a sort of stage autobiography or a stage biography. I wrote the biography for her. Originally, she was going to play herself her friends had sort of ganged up on her and said, you know, you really should do this and you should tell your story and it should be you. And people love it when you're, you know, out there with them. And she thought she could, but once we got this one woman uh, show done that I'd, you know, I'd I'd, um, written for her with her, um, we went into workshop at Lincoln center and after we finished the reading for this very enthusiastic group of people who adored it and cheered and laughed and carried on and and it worked like gangbusters. She said, I never want to do that again. I'd rather kill myself than play myself. And she said, my, uh, My admiration of actors has soared as my self-respect has plummeted. (laughs) I can't do it. And I understood it. I always thought, how could she get to the place where she would be, you know, crying about her mother and her mother's death and have to act that every night or eight shows a week? I mean, it's just like, no, I, I knew she couldn't do it. And the one anyone who was in that room that day felt very, very lucky to have seen her do it once. But um, the event became more than just Gloria's life. Um, once we got Diane Paulus involved and we decided we wanted to do it, if she couldn't do it herself, we didn't want to do it as a standard one-woman play, one-actor play. And so um, we brought in an ensemble Um uh, diverse ensembles that people would be playing, you know, the major other roles in her life. And once we realized <laughs> that the roles that really had the most meat were women, it was Bella Abzug and um, uh, Dorothy Pittman-Hughes and, and Flo Kennedy and um, Wilma Mankiller, the first female uh, email, uh, uh Chief of the Cherokee Nation, who was her best friend, it was like, well, let's make this an all female, an all women uh, ensemble, which we did. So it was a multi racial, multi generational group of women working together, and we began to build um, this performance piece. And then because Gloria's whole consciousness got raised by understanding the difference between hierarchy as in a pyramid shape and the circle where everyone is linked and not ranked, began to realize, oh, this has to be done in the round. And then I decided that the second act of the play should be a talking circle because the talking circle is where, um, the big changes in a movement happen where the where the planning happens in movement where the truth gets told and um people thought we were crazy like how can you because we we're going to be in a commercial off-broadway house and it's like you're going to rely our second act on what people have to say after your show i said well it's not a regular talk back. let's this is a talking circle. It's the rules are very, very different. It's not like, have you thought about changing, you know, your, you know, the 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 beginning of the second act? Or I didn't understand so-and-so. And no, it's the question to the audience is now that you have seen Gloria's story, does any of her story resonate with your story? And if so, what? People will get up and they would say, I've never told anyone before, but I had an abortion. Oh, I never told anyone before, but I was raped. I never told anyone before cuz my mother would have been so upset, but um I I could not stay in the first job I got which would, you know, take me somewhere because, you know, the my boss tried to you know, tried to assault me, and I couldn't go back to work. I just pretended to her that I went every day. And we heard these amazing stories of what women went through through all the different generations. And uh, the men would get up, and they would say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for all that I have done, that I've lived my life as if I were still in a male locker room. And I'm sorry to every woman that I have abused in this way. It was like, oh. So... You know, it was just one of these great events. Um, and Gloria in New York did the Talking Circle, you know, two or three. She led it uh, two or three uh, performances a week, and people just, don't you know, we were in the midst of Donald Trump. And so when we were in previews, um, uh, Kavanaugh, was the Kavanaugh hearings were taking place and then that he got away with it, people would come to the theater and they would just, the lights would go down and you could hear people crying. You know, it was, and by the time they left, they were energized. And often the young people energized the older people who came in saying, we've been marching for so long and we're just tired. We're tired of it. And now we seem to be going backwards. And the young people get up, no, we're organizing and we're we're gonna we're not gonna stand for this. And so those, you know, each generation was helping the other. One was learning from the other about how to organize and other and then when they had gotten too tired, the young people were saying, Let me give you a shot of adrenaline. So at any rate, it was one of the most gratifying experiences I've had in a very long time. And And it's actually playing now during the pandemic in Tucson, Arizona, this fabulous theater theater, um, called Invisible Theater that's run by a Jewish um, uh, activist, feminist, uh, who is in her 50th year as artistic director named Suze Clausen.
0: I was reading one of the reviews of Gloria, and there was a guest that noted in the talk back that she had a lot of hope because the fight for equitable rights for women used to be so much worse and that it was getting better and that reminded me of the story that you once shared with the New York Times about the moment your undergraduate advisor told you that you're quite talented but women can't direct and write professionally you should really consider going into children's theater and your amazing response that was well yeah you just watch me i just i read that i thought about it and for me it's just such a wonderful representation of the fight against low odds just how gloria wrote about and always um pushed forward in her own activism. So I wanted to ask you, in being the playwright of Gloria, what does the fight look like for you today following the George Floyd protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the recent transition of the American presidency? What's what's our fight today? I'm I'm feeling extremely
1: hopeful with Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Doug Emhoff, and Kamala Harris. And I say all four of them because that seems to be the way they like to present themselves. And there are so many firsts here and wonderful things here, um, as well as some just sanity and stability in a way that uh, I realize um, – that we've been without on such a deep level. I mean, I, I think we're a traumatized country, or at least half of the country is traumatized. It feels as if we've had an abusive parent or something where we're um, jumpy and distrustful and scared and angry and, you know, all, all these things. And now it seems as if there's someone who wants to look towards a more just country, Um, to go to the ideals of women's equality, racial equality, immigrant equality, all these things that I was brought up to believe were the basis of what made America truly great. Um, He believes in it and he lives it. Uh, He seems to be aware that the white working class has been left behind, And we're paying a heavy price for that. I think there's a lot of work to do. Uh, For women, um, we have a huge amount of work to do, certainly in our profession, but in all professions. It still is not an equal playing field in our profession if we're just going to talk about theater. Um, Women in theater have made huge leaps when I think that – I was told, as you already told the story, oh, you know, you might be quite talented, but women can't direct professionally in the American theater. That was only 1974. And then by the 80s, when I was usually the first woman to direct on any main stage in the country I directed on, that is no longer the case. Now, it's still not um, 50-50, but it's better. It's not a sort of surprise when a woman is directing a play. Uh, It's a surprise still somewhat on Broadway. It's a surprise still somewhat in film, right? Getting better both places. They're still sort of, they're in double digits rather than single digits now in terms of percentages of women. Um, So there's a long way to go there. And then of course for people of color, um, that's a long slog as well um and i think what i'm getting happy about is so many of my colleagues of color are remembering finally that um it's not just race it's it's also gender and just at the Dramatists guild yesterday one of our uh representatives of color who was talking about um um equity for uh, people who look like her. She said, and also I have to include my white sisters. So I thought, well, that's very nice because unfortunately there has been some fracturing in the movement, which makes me sad. I think we have to all link arms together. And as you know, in some of the, um, there's some anti-Semitism that has to be fought uh, within some of the women's um, organizations. That breaks my heart, but I've been through it before. It's like the second round. Happened in the 60s as well. <laughs> when Jews were thrown out of the civil rights movement, that was a painful time. And then we built back, and now we might have to work pretty hard again.
0: We're going to take a quick short break with a message from our sponsors, and then we're going to get back to
2: Thanks for listening to Theater Schmooze from Alliance for Jewish Theater. I'm Jeremy Aluma, the executive director of AJT, and we have several events lined up for the rest of March 2021 that we'd love for you to attend. On Sunday, March 21st, at 3 p.m. Eastern, we're hosting an animation and theater webinar with NAACP winner Yehuda Jai Husband. On Tuesday, March 23rd, at 3 p.m. Eastern, we have a playwright talking circle, where playwrights will meet with one another to discuss strategies, ideas, and solutions. And on Tuesday, March 30th, at 2 p.m. Eastern, we have an artistic director talking circle. To learn more about these programs, email me at jeremy at alljewishtheater.org and check out our website, alljewishtheater.org. Thank you and enjoy the rest of Theater Shoes, Episode 1.
0: That was quick, and we're back now. Nice <laughs> to be back. I wanted to backtrack a little bit on something that you touched earlier, which uh, is anti-Semitism in the midst of our fight for racial and gender equality. Um, and talk about your legacy a bit as a playwright and what's to come. Mm. So I remember that earlier this year at the AJT 2020 conference, you were talking about one of the first plays you ever wrote Anula Allen's Autobiography of a Survivor, Mm -hmm. the oral history of a survivor from the Holocaust Mm -hmm. and how you were able to get a produced at Tyrone Guthrie Theater in 1977. Mm -hmm. So now you're working on another Holocaust story, an adaptation of the pianist from the original memoir by Spielman. Mm So since you wrote Anula, your place have covered incredible range, including stories of black women and feminism, the KKK, terrorism, so much more. And it's really interesting that in this moment in your life, in U.S. politics, in the world, in activism, that you're revisiting the Holocaust from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, why this story right now?
1: Well, it's very interesting you ask um, and how you ask it. It's really astute. Um, The producer who called me uh, to commission me to write uh, the pianist was a guy named Michael Woke, whom I went to graduate school with at university of Minnesota, where I was, I was a Bush fellow there and at the Guthrie theater. And he was in the graduate program. He was from Minnesota and he was a playwright and I wrote um, this play Anula, which was based on my uh, best friend and college roommates, aunt who had escaped, as you said. Um, and I wanted to understand how, because so much of my family had not, except for my grandmother and her sister. My mother's entire family was wiped out outside of Warsaw, and then on her mother's side, and then on her father's side, um, they. We don't know whether they died in Treblinka or, or the ghetto in the Warsaw side of the family. So it was always a big thing in my life, and my first play was about it. Um, so he called me like three years ago and said, "I don't know if you remember me, but of course, when you're young, everyone imprints." Of course, I remembered him. I hadn't thought about him in you know, a few decades, but I said, "How are you?" And he said. I'm calling you because I have with my uh, producing partners, the stage rights to André Spielmann's um, memoir, The Pianist. And after seeing Anula, I mean, we're talking, this was 19, this was four years ago, so say it was 2016, and it was 40 years earlier. Since... You were so amazing with Anula. I thought maybe this would interest you. And I was like, "What? Um, a lifetime later. Um, and I said, "Oh, Michael, I don't know if I can do another Holocaust play because I did one other. I did an adaptation of I b singer's um, novella masuga, um which is about um, survivors here in New York. Um, and um, said I don't know if I can do another another holocaust play. He said, "Oh, give it a thought. I'll send you the materials." And so he sent me the memoir and I remember looking at my husband and I said, "Oh god, honey, I don't know if I can do this." He said, "Of course you're going to do this. The question is when you'll admit it to yourself that you're going to do this." So eventually he was right. I realized I couldn't stop thinking about it. I called him and I said, "Yes." Um and they sent me, I said, but I have to be able to go to Warsaw. I have to go. I have to be there. I have to walk those streets. I've got to feel that. And they said they would send me. So at any rate, um, I before I went to Warsaw, though, I couldn't stop myself, and I started writing a first draft, even without going. And... As it was pouring out of me, I thought, but is anyone going to care but me and a few more Jews um, about this story? And I looked up, and on the television was, uh, was Charlottesville. And my husband looked at me. I looked at him. He said, honey, look at this. And it was just when they were marching with the Nazi flags and it was like the whole room started to spin. And I thought, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think we still need to tell this story. Um, and so it just became this um, incredible um, labor of love working on this. And um, I met with uh, Spielmann's son and um, widow, Um I spent a great deal of time in Warsaw. I found my great-grandmother's grave, which was very important for me to do in the Jewish cemetery, um, and uh, really found why I had to do this piece now. Also, my mother... it was interesting when Trump was elected, she said, Oh, my God, I've seen this before. And I knew it was, She knew. Oh, my God, I've seen this before. So it just seemed also as I was working on it, um, and we've been seeing, you know, the rise of um, hate crimes, Um and mass murders of Jews even in this country again, and anti-Semitic comments that are quite allowed again and shocking, um, that there may be a generation or two that doesn't even know the story. And so I just feel I have to tell it.
0: I wanted to congratulate you on three decades as artistic director and resident playwright of McCarter Theatre Center in Princeton, New Jersey, where you oversaw more than 160 productions, created a home for theater legends, amplified the voices of women and people of color, won a Tony for Outstanding Regional Theater, really impressive, and were twice nominated for a Tony as a playwright and director. All very incredible feats. Now, I'm particularly curious about your experiences at McCarter from a Jewish lens. What was it like for you as a Jewish theater artist in a particularly non-Jewish place? <laughs> How do you know that? It is, in fact, a
1: particularly non-Jewish place. Um, It's interesting. <laughs> I remember what my mother decided she... When my father was offered a job at Princeton, she felt she couldn't she couldn't live there comfortably. But it was a different place than it was in the 60s and 70s. I got there in 1990, and it was uh, a little better. But I actually found more racism and anti-Semitism here in Princeton than I had felt anywhere else I'd been in the country. And part of it was that it was all so polite. Everything was masked, but then if someone had a little bit too much to drink at a party or something, something would come out. So I remember, here's a, it's just a little anecdote. Um, I was at, I was, you know, being, I must have met a thousand people. In my first two months in Princeton, to you know, meet the major donors and the board and the old board and the new board. There are all this, and the uh, um, and the uh, people who wanted to subscribe and tell me what plays they wanted to see. All of this. So I was meeting the community. I was at a very posh home, and they were these uh, women were all talking to each other. And oh, said one of them said, "Oh my God." It, do you know that so-and-so's daughter might be marrying a Jew? And the other woman said, really? She said, yes, I mean, they're just so different from us. I mean, you know, we talk about you take the red car, I'll take the green car. They say, I'll take the Porsche, you take the Volvo. They're just so vulgar. What am I going to do? Emily, do you have Jewish friends? And a terrible thing happened. It was as if I had lost my voice completely. I was just stunned. And then I went, "Uh, uh," and I said something idiotic like many. And they went, oh, because we just don't know how to talk to them. And then went on to other things. I left that party. I'd only been in town for a little while. They were the biggest donors. The woman who said this was one of the biggest donors. And I thought, I'm a coward. I am horrible. I called my mother and I said, I can't believe I didn't say anything. This is someone like me. And she said, Emily, you did exactly the right thing. Now you know who's who and never forget it. And I do. I know. I still know who each one of those people was. I know their kids. I know who would, who would invite me into their homes once they figured out I was Jewish and who would not. Um, I was quite stunned that in 1990, I would be up against that. I, I, I was in shock. I didn't know that people would actually speak this way. But as my mother's, my father couldn't pass, but I can. You know, there are people who might not know I was Jewish. I mean that you 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 definitely know my husband is Jewish. You know, but I I I can't. People say, "Oh, are are you French? Are you?" You know, um, but uh, yeah. So I heard some stuff when I arrived. Um, so I thought I remember my father saying, "This is a good thing. You don't want to be preaching to the choir. You're going to bring America onto that stage in my first season. You know, I did a rhythm and blues musical that I co-authored with Entozaki Shange and and Baikita Karo, and we rocked that place. But it was a really, it's the southernmost Ivy League school. It was the last to have any compassion for Black people or Jews, that's for sure. Um, Jews were not let into the eating clubs, black people, you know, but when I got here, the the stars were all black and Jewish. It was Cornel West and Toni Morrison and Harold. Um, uh, and, you know, there was a, a very exciting time uh, to be here when the legends were, were, were at, you know, their, their peak. Um. And it continues to be a very interesting place. And it is much more diverse than it was. But, yeah, it it was a challenge. I'm glad I had it. I learned a lot. and, And I think I had a lot to give. And they embraced me. Yeah. Eventually they all... They all put their arms around me and we were very successful.
0: This has been such a riveting conversation. I, I cannot wait to share it with our listeners. I just, they're going to love it. The stories, the hope, the anger, the very necessary anger that fuels us and makes us go forward. Um, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Danielle. It's just a pleasure to speak with you. Take care.
0: And thank you, listeners, for tuning into Theater Schmooze. A special thanks to Lawrence Goodman, our producer, Ilya Levinson and Alex Kaufman, the composers of our theme music, Jeremy Aluma, the executive director of Alliance for Jewish Theater, and the entire Alliance for Jewish Theater community. If you like what you've heard today, support this podcast and all of our initiatives towards connecting Jewish theater makers by making a tax-deductible donation to Alliance for Jewish Theater at alljewishtheater.org or joining as a member. Make sure to give us a review on iTunes and follow Alliance for Jewish Theater on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming Jewish theater events, group meetings, and news in our world. I'm Danielle, and I'll see you next time. Lahaya.